traditional governance approach is to say, well, it's the law. It's the expectation. You have to do it. And our society now is saying, no, we don't. So we have to adapt. We have to find a better ways to communicate. We have to find better ways to engage our partners, customers, our clients, whichever language you want to use there. And look at that coordination and collaboration. Stop taking a dictatorial or a directive approach and look at an enabling approach. Look at accountability and transparency. We have to be able to explain the why now. Welcome to another episode of the Crisis Conflict Emergency Management Podcast. My name is Kyle, and I'll be your host for the show. Today, we are going to talk about a topic that is not discussed that much within the emergency or crisis management space, and that is the topic of governance and crisis management. Now, why governance? The concept of governance is central to crisis and emergency management. In this context, governance refers to the systems and structures that dictate how decisions are made during crisis and emergencies, including the roles, responsibilities of the various actors, and processes for coordinating responses and the measures for accountability. Effective governance can help ensure that responses to crises and emergencies are swift, organized, and effective, minimizing harm and facilitating recovery. On the other hand, weak governance and can exacerbate the impacts of crises and emergencies, leading to disorganized response, delays, and even harm to the trust that the public has in institutions themselves. So what are the trends and issues in this space? Well, there have been several trends that are currently shaping the field of governance, and these include a greater emphasis on coordination and collaboration. So, for example, there's an increasing recognition that managing a crisis or an emergency effectively requires strong coordination and collaboration among various actors from different levels of government to private sector entities and civil society organizations. We also see an increased focus on resilience and that growing focus on building resilience into governance structures with an aim to not just respond to crisis and emergencies effectively, but also to enhance the ability of communities and systems to withstand future shocks. There's also been a greater attention to accountability and transparency in recent years, and there has been a push towards more transparency and accountability in the crisis and emergency management space with efforts to ensure that decisions are made in an open and transparent manner and that those responsible for managing crisis and emergencies are held accountable. And we also see a new incorporation of technologies. So new technologies are increasingly becoming incorporated into governance structures from data analytics tools that can help identify and respond to emerging threats from social media platforms or that can facilitate communication during a crisis. Or even more recently, the complex issues surrounding the use of AI, or if we even look at what's going on in Ukraine and the war, the widespread use of drones. So helping us unpack all this today is our guest, Aaron Marks, founder and principal of 139 Consulting, a fellow civil expert for NATO's Civil Mercy Planning Committee and a leading figure in chemical, biological, and consequence management. Aaron has been at the forefront of national crisis planning, civil military coordination, and consequence management since 2006, dealing with incidents involving weapons of mass destruction or toxic industrial materials. Prior to his consulting career, he served in the messy medicine as a paramedic specializing in hazardous environment care and tactical medicine and served during Hurricanes Katrina and Rita. Aaron holds a BA in psychology from Texas Tech University and a master's degree in public administration with an emergency management focus from Jacksonville State University and is a certified master exercise practitioner and national registry paramedic. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Kyle. Looking forward to our discussion. So let's unpack this a little bit more in the topic of governance. I really haven't seen too many people talk about it very much, but I think it's sort of, if I would say, infused into the way that we operate in the emergency management space. So the regulations coming down from a federal level or and into the state level and local levels down to our communities and how we function and how we operate. And so I've mentioned some of the trends just now, but let's start with what your view is on this topic. And so what is your take on this idea of quote unquote governance and how it applies to emergency management? Well, I mean, I, I think you're right. We're in a period of transition right now. There are a lot of things that are changing about the environment that we live and we work in. There are a lot of things that are changing about the expectations 
of our partners and the expectations of the, the people that we serve and we support. And there's a huge cultural shift in how people look at the world around them. Some of this is driven by, I guess the term of, of the moment is crisis fatigue, where people feel that we've been in emergency mode since you know 2020 with uh, the onset of COVID-19 crisis. Some of it is just general societal shift. I think we're seeing a big change where the traditional approach to governance has been pretty rigid, where they're looking at setting rules and regulations or setting absolute checklists. And experience has shown that while that make us feel better, might make us more confident that we know what to do, it doesn't necessarily work in the real world. So governance is changing, or at least I hope it's changing. And I'm trying to make changes and support the little corner of the world that I'm in to move away from that rigid, restrictive structure to more of an enabling structure. We're setting expectations or we're setting broad boundaries. We're setting foundation elements. We're establishing authorities to work from, but we're not rigidly defining how that work is to be done. Because I think that, that what people have either forgotten or who have willfully ignored are two things. Number one is that in any situation, the environment has a vote. We can't predict everything. We can't structure and pre-select all the answers. And then the second piece, and I think this is going to become even more apparent in the future, is that mother nature is the ultimate serial killer. And no matter what we do, nature and the environment are going to surprise us. And that combination of two things, people are opening their eyes to it. And I'm hoping that we're going to see a shift from restrictive government to supportive or enabling governance and work through that. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that there is, you know, sort of that old expression that if everything is a crisis, nothing's a crisis. So if we've been living through this for the last three years and, and everything is an urgent requirement, everything is, you know, a catastrophic event and everyone is sort of doom scrolling on Twitter, right? Then we do have that fatigue that sets in. And you mentioned something that I think is really sort of instrumental to, to maybe focus on for a bit, which is the fact that if we already have crisis fatigue and we want to, for example, in the context of this conversation, we're talking about sort of our response frameworks and how we manage and resource and allocate and work in the emergency management space. And we're, if we're talking about loosening restrictive sort of processes and procedures, you need to have an inherent degree of trust in people and the organizations to be able to do their job and make the right decisions. So with that sort of deregulation, you need more trust. But as you mentioned, in this very ambiguous environment, we don't always have the answers. And I think this is starting to become a problem within the public sphere, specifically in public trust spaces, and will eventually have an impact in emergency management in terms of, okay, we need the trust and the public trust to be able to make accurate decisions, but there's been sort of a distrust bred for a number of years, and now we're facing this sort of weird conflux of events, right? So we don't necessarily know what's going to happen. We're doing our best to try and manage the situation and prevent an escalation of a crisis, but we need that public trust. And at the same time, we don't want to slow our response capabilities by having a highly regulatory in sort of bureaucratic environment. We need the flexibility to respond to a changing environment and we need that type of ambiguity, flexibility, or we need the flexibility to work in an ambiguous environment, I should say, and the trust to be able to do that. And I think we're entering a very interesting space right now that we have not had for a very, very long time, maybe if ever, I'm not sure. What do you think about that? I think you're absolutely correct. I think we've seen a huge loss of trust in leadership and 
I think that we've seen very, very overt politicization of crisis and emergency management, at least in the United States, uh, and probably to a similar level across the rest of the world. And it's not that decisions weren't made politically in the past or that politics and, and control and power didn't influence the decision making. It's that now it's out in the open and now it's very, very overt and it's blatant. And because of that, the people that we need to trust us to make decisions in their best interest are now actively asking those questions. Is it really in our best interest? Who does it benefit? And the failure in communications, the failure in transparency of governance, the, the failure of the people making the decisions, setting the expectations to explain why, and the tendency to revert to a technique that any parent will tell you doesn't work, which is answering that question with, because I told you to, has created a singularity. And it's such sucking all of the influence, it's sucking all of the trust, it's sucking all of the ability of a crisis or emergency manager to, to impact their communities and to make those decisions that's been degraded to a level that, you know, to, to steal your line that I don't think we've ever seen before, where in the past, there's been that level of trust that actions have been taken for the greater good. Actions have been taken for, you know, to, to save lives, to save property, to protect the environment. And now people are going, wait a minute, is this action to save my life or is this action to save the lives of my family or my sphere of interest as opposed to the collective? And, you know, they're they're looking for ways to define their interest and we need to adjust our governance structure our governance philosophies to recognize that loss of trust and to find ways to at least attempt to restore it. I don't know if that's feasible. I've seen a huge shift from, okay, I'm willing to experience some discomfort personally because it's going to allow the community, it's going to allow the neighborhood, it's going to allow the county, the state, the nation to sustain. To right now, we're in situation where a lot of people seem to be going, well, I don't want to do that anymore. What's in it for me? And traditional governance approach is to say, well, it's the law. It's the expectation. You have to do it. And our society now is saying, no, we don't. So we have to adapt. We have to find a better ways to communicate. We have to find better ways to engage our partners, customers, our clients, whichever language you want to use there. And, you know, look at that coordination and collaboration. Stop taking a dictatorial or a directive approach and look at an enabling approach. You know, look at accountability and transparency. We have to be able to explain the why now. You know, looking at the new technologies, one of the side effects of these new technologies is visibility. We aren't making decisions in a small, dark conference room with a bunch of insiders anymore. We're moving more and more towards a true technocratic democracy where everybody can see every decision. And if they want to, they can make a comment or, or attempt to influence it. So all of this has to be taken into account as we adjust to our new environment and you know, if we don't adjust, then, you know, it's the old cliche. It's the dinosaur screaming at the asteroid as it comes down to, uh, to hit the earth. Yeah, I think that there's an interesting dynamic happening, as you mentioned, in terms of social media and sort of always on in terms of being with social media and the rapid way that information spreads, especially during some type of crisis or emergency event. And 
the public essentially, you know, requesting or asking for things or sort of saying, why aren't you doing this or why aren't you doing that? Questioning and sort of investigating and these narratives come out, which are, I think part of the frustration is when you're sitting in the governance structure and you're trying to manage an event and you've got all these questions coming in, you know, obviously you're dealing with a lot of information and people are sitting on the sidelines sort of armchair quarterbacking the event, which always happens. But I think the speed of which that is happening is a lot different now. And so that can escalate very quickly and get out of control. So there needs to be a a rapid sort of containment of a crisis in terms of getting information out to the public and being able to sort of put your face out there, so to speak, and and get information to the public to let people know and acknowledge that you are doing something and trying to mitigate an event. I think one of the challenges, and you mentioned the coordination collaboration piece, in the past we had sort of, here's this group of people that would make a decision, they would consult each other, get the experts in the room, and then send that decision down for implementation. And I think now we have to be extremely comfortable with the transparency that's needed to build trust, right? And so then being able to come out and say, this is why we made this decision. These were the factors that led to that decision. And this is the decision that we're taking moving forward based on these factors. You're always going to get blowback from people, but at least you're transparent about it. And you can stand there and say that, you know, this is why we've drawn these conclusions. It's still going to be very difficult because I think that the public now demands a lot of information, a lot of understanding as to why decisions are being made. And it gets very difficult to be able to provide them all that information in a very concise amount of time with a continuously, you know, changing environment as, you know, the situation unfolds. And you get a lot of questions about why aren't you doing this or why aren't you doing that? And it can be very, very difficult to try and manage. But I think in, in one way, and I'll sort of wrap up my rant here, but I think in one way, it almost goes from this centralized approach to governance where we are sort of having a bureaucratic process and we are driving things down, policy changes, regulatory frameworks, and and guiding people on how to respond and mitigate and manage communities and risks to a almost a decentralized structure where we need to have really just extremely active community collaboration, community engagement, and really push the community forward first. And in that way, you can build more public trust and build that type of environment to be able to influence your community a bit more when an event does occur. So on the day-to-day small decisions you're making, you're building public trust so that when something big happens, that you already have a basis of trust to work from. That's sort of where my head goes with all of that. So I'll I'll pause there and uh, turn it back over to you for your thoughts. No, I mean, I think that's uh, an important understanding to have. There's research starting to come out now, or at least to be published now it's been discussed inside of the community for a little bit uh, as the peer review was going on, talking about the value of individual resilience, preparedness versus community resilience and some preparedness. And the theory now, and I, I like this approach, agree with it, that the community engagement, community resilience, community focused governance has a much higher return because it creates surge capacity. Resilient community can step in and support a brittle individual. A prepared community can step in and help to support somebody who maybe isn't as prepared as everyone else. Whereas focusing on individual resilience, individual preparedness, that doesn't create the surge capacity. And you want to take the same approach, I think, toward your mindset, toward governance, where that rigid directive, you know, really structured governance doesn't have any search. It doesn't have any flexibility. It doesn't have any adaptability in there. Whereas if you take, I guess the cliche is if you take a more objectives or endpoint focused approach, where instead of defining how you're going to do something, you define why you need to do it and where and when, and you leave the how nebulous 
you leave the how is where the adaptability lives. That gives you that ability to flex, the ability to recognize that the environment has a vote and that nothing is ever going to happen the, the exact way that we predict it. And, you know, I think that, you know, coming back around to one of the trends you mentioned, that the new technologies looking at machine learning or AI or variants thereof, you know, this is one of the places where that type of technology can be very, very helpful, where it can help us try and look at the possibilities. You know, it, it can help us look at, okay, what, how are the way things could go differently or things could go wrong, you know, looking at contingencies. At the same time, there's a risk there that we get sucked into the rabbit hole and get so, you know, we, we lose sight of the forest because we get focused on one tree, one threat, one possibility, you know, and no matter how, you know, existential or pretty or, or however you want to describe it, no matter how attractive that one tree is, we have to make sure that at least from a governance level, we stay at forest level view because we're responsible for all the trees. I think the use of technologies is going to do a couple of things. I mean, in terms of governance, it's going to, if you are sitting in a key position in your government, in your city, county, state level, you should be able to use technologies and emerging technologies to try and discover a way to better help the communities, better enable a response, better, you know, identify risk and mitigate, you know, other issues. So there's an aspect there that's quite interesting. So from the adaption and the use of technology, personally, I found them very interesting found them very useful. I think you have to know what you want. You have to know the end result of what you want to what you want to achieve, what's the outcome. And so you can use tools to be able to achieve that objective. At the same time, I don't think we are completely prepared for people that just use use the same technology for other purposes. You know, and I think we're, it's just going to continually undermine our efforts. And I think that that's where if we draw a contrast and the parallel or, you know, between, you know, 19 sort of 50s sort of, you know, civil defense era and that emphasis on individual and community resilience and all these things in that civil defense aspect. And then we draw a parallel to today. You're exactly right. Like individuals are not really prepared at all. We have actually weakened societies and communities in terms of resilience. The greater the implementation of technology, the greater our uh, susceptibility is to you know, disinformation. And we have simply just sort of undermined our best efforts that we built upon over the decades. And in many cases, in many sort of the NATO spaces that I've been in, there's been a, a real recall and, and remembrance about the old civil defense time and how we've sort of lost a lot of things. It has been some very interesting you know, conversations around what do we do about bunkers these days, right? Do we even have any bunkers anymore? Or do we have multi-purpose bunkers? I mean, if you go look at Finland and their public shelter system, I mean, it's absolutely ingrained inside of their codes and their building codes and standards that every apartment block, every building, every house, every office space has enough bunker space, shelter space to be able to house that entire building. And it's throughout the entire society. And so they made a conscious choice and coming back to the point of governance, they made a conscious choice years ago after World War II that they were going to incorporate this as part of their society. So they changed their codes, their standards. And now when you look at it now, especially in light of what's happening in Europe, they are amazingly prepared because they have shelters under every building with air filtration systems and water filtration and all sorts of systems integrated inside there. That is absolutely an amazing decision that they made decades ago. And I wonder today... What decisions are we making that are going to have such a positive outcome in the next 20 or 30 years? Well, I mean, the the example from Finland is really, really strong. And the best part of that is that their bunkers aren't dead space. They aren't single use. They aren't single purpose. Every day, there are people in those spaces, their classrooms, their childcare centers, their cafeterias, their integrated space that if something bad happens, they can close the doors and turn on the filtration systems and harden them. And it's something that people use 
every day. And, you know, I do a lot of work with technology companies talking about designing ways to help manage incidents, to help make decisions. And one of the key design tenants is that if people don't use it every day, they aren't going to use it in a crisis. If people aren't comfortable in a space every day, if they don't know how to, to get there, if they don't spend time there, then they're going to forget about it under stress. And, you know, when we talk about governance, I mean, that's one of the key elements. You write these governance structures, you create these expectations, and then you put the, the file into a hard drive, a backup somewhere, or you print it up and you put it up on a shelf somewhere and you never look at it again until you go, wait a minute, we need this. So, I mean, that's another shift in governance and it's another piece that, that we need to change how we look, how we're setting expectations, how we're setting limitations on behaviors or how we're communicating enabling elements. I guess we have to stop looking at incidents and stop looking at crisis as something that's unique or special. We have to look at it as it's an adaptation of our day-to-day. -day. Big debates, in again, in the United States about this, looking at the implementation of ICS, the Incident Command System, in private sector businesses. And you go and talk to private sector engagements or, or stakeholders, and they don't operate that way. They don't have a paramilitary hierarchy in place. They don't have a, a very structured, you know, vertical leadership structure. Everybody's very flat. They're integrated. They're, they're now networked as opposed to pillared. And you go into that group and say, well, we're going to impose a hierarchical vertical structure on you in times of crisis when there's already stress and there's already, you know, adrenaline impacting critical thinking and, and everybody's already uncomfortable. And instead of emphasizing the muscle memory, the habits that have already been put in place, we try and get people to switch to an entirely different mindset, an entirely different way of operating. And, you know, that's another point in governance that we need to address, where instead of trying to make something completely different. Instead of trying to impose something else, we need to shift our governance mindset to play to the existing strengths, to take advantage of the existing habits, of the existing practices, of the existing structures, instead of trying to add something completely different top of it. And when I'm doing some of my work with NATO, looking at that civil-military interaction, the civil-military coordination, especially in terms of chemical or biological response, that's where I think we have some of the most interesting conversations where, you know, a general officer standing up and go, what do you mean a mayor is going to tell me I'm not allowed to do that? Or a mayor or a fire chief standing up and go, what do you mean a soldier is going to come in and think that they're in charge? Because they're working through those structures, those interaction points. And that all comes back to governance where we need to think about what do those interactions look like? What are our expectations for the communicate? Or are we going to use governance to establish, okay, this is the objective. This is the mission that we want to accomplish. And and based on your understanding of the current environment, find the best way to get there. I think another example that came up recently was really interesting in terms of, you know, if we if we continue along that thread of, you know, making decisions and, and for communities and sort of governing how communities are going to act. And your point with Finland was spot on. Those are dual purpose facilities. I mean, there's hockey rinks and all sorts of stuff in these shelters, which is fascinating that it's sort of incorporated and ingrained in the way that people live. And so if we look at an example of like what was recently happening in California, and I'm not an expert at California, but I saw obviously in the headlines, you know, the insurance companies not wanting to continue with insurance coverage in California for wildfire. And this comes to your point about a changing climate environment or a changing, you know, weather environment, weather patterns, whatever the case is. But at some point, something changed where the risk factor for insurance industries were basically saying, we're not going to do this anymore, which will drive change in the communities and will drive change in the communities a couple of ways. Well, you see what 
was already coming out from, at least in the media anyway, about, well, the U.S. government should now pick up the insurance costs. Or you take an alternative approach, which is, okay, the communities need to change. They need to be, how can I say this? They need to be reoriented, or maybe that's not the right sort of phrase, but we need to sort of work with the communities now to understand that they are living through a perpetual crisis. And basically, I just got off another call and somebody was remarking about how you know, every two weeks was a wildfire and everything seems to be on fire about where they're at. It's just, it's just really an issue of where, okay, if that's the new environment we're living in, we need a new governance approach to this. That's going to really provide the communities with the ability to adapt that they need to. And we can't continue to rely on, well, if this is mixed missing or if a major insurance company stops with their process and their procedures in California, because they have all the data and all the costs and they decide that it's too much risk, then something is off, right? And then we can't just simply can perpetuate this type of living in a, that type of risky environment. When we realize and start, people start to actually realize that the fact that there is whole environment has changed, we need to change it, we need to start living, which means that we have to come up with new ways to govern our communities, new ways to mitigate risk, and then also to respond to crisis and emergencies. And that's everything from the gamut, from public education, all the way down to legal frameworks and rules and expectations at a community level to you know, a state level. And that's sort of what I see sort of on, on your point about that, you know, changing climate environment, changing security environment. So we're always living in a perpetual state of crisis in some form. And I think that is going to be put upon us whether or not we want it or not. Oh, I mean, that opens a whole nother can of worms. Is there such thing as a natural disaster? I mean, what's the disaster? What's the crisis around a wildfire? Fires happen. Fire has been part of the ecosystem, part of the environment since before humans came into the area. You know, there are, you know, going to California, there are plant species, there are species of trees can't reproduce without fire. There has to be a burn in order to, to trigger their germination cycle. So, you know, that tells us that fire is part of nature, part of the ecosystem. The disaster happens where humans interact with fire and, you know, with governance that, that gets into a question of risk tolerance where, okay, do we want to allow behaviors that increase risk? And if we allow those behaviors, who's responsible for managing the risk? Who's responsible for managing the consequences? In terms of the insurance policies, people are looking at it as insurance, as enabling them to ignore risk. You know, they're not required to take protective measures. Now, they're not required to support controlled burn programs. They're not required to to clear their lands to certain areas. They're not, you know, they're not required to to, to actively manage the risk, they think that they can ignore it because the consequence is going to be covered by insurance. And that's not the way the system was designed. And I think that's one of the points of consequence. But it's not just the fires. Look at the arguments and the uproar over the modified National Flood Insurance Program, where they went through and updated risk maps for flood risk. And because of that, insurance premiums went up because the understanding of environments changed, because the models changed and, and people went from one category of, of flood risk to a higher category. And as soon as the insurance rates went up, they went to their political representatives and said, this isn't acceptable. And the political representatives went in and influenced or attempted to influence both the insurance program and the risk program. And that political mass resulted in the updates to the risk maps being rolled back or being changed again or having exceptions made. Well, just because you can't afford more insurance, that doesn't impact the risk. That impacts your tolerance of the risk. And once again, you know, to tie this back to governance, this is that communications point. This is that decision point where the purpose of insurance isn't to eliminate risk, it's to spread the consequence. And the problem is that, you know, in California, the insurance was being used to enable risky behavior. 
to the point that the consequence could no longer be spread. It all ties back into governance and to setting those expectations and to setting the foundations for decision making where the crisis response to this, in my opinion, should be, you know, specifically looking at the insurance piece, should be that transparency and communication, explaining why the decisions were made, explaining why rates are going up or explaining why policies aren't going to be issued. And then providing potential solution. This is what would need to change in order for the insurance to remain, in order for us to be able to provide more coverage or to not raise rates. That gets even more complicated when you bring the economics into it. When an insurance company goes, we're not going to do this because it's not profitable anymore. That gets into a whole other social dynamic that right now is becoming more and more prevalent in this time talking about, okay, what's fair, what's equal, what's equitable. And that's an entire other podcast and an entire other discussion. Yeah, it sure is. And it's really, it's an interesting discussion in terms of sort of international perspective on that too and what's happening in the States. But yeah, we'll, we'll have to save that one for another day. But I think the example of what you're talking about with the National Flood Insurance Program, extremely interesting because of the fact that because of the community reaction, the political influence, rolling back the new sort of risk maps. That's extremely interesting because now, to me, it comes back to what we were talking about before in terms of governance, right? Something happens, the community reacts again because they're flooded now when previously, you know, the climate, the overall climate, not just talking about sort of climate change, but the overall climate in their community was such that they didn't have very bad floods. Now they're in a different flood zone and things have gotten worse. And now it's more of a disaster because a lot more of the community is involved. And so then that same social pressure is applied upon the emerging managers, the responders, and the city councils and everybody else about why aren't you doing enough? So this really comes down to a question. I'd love to hear your thoughts about that, where I sort of come back full circle in this whole conversation. And today, is the role of governance and emergency management to just perpetuate the status quo? That's a fun question. I think if you ask people outside of emergency management, the answer is going to be yes. I think people want everything to be comfortable. People want everything to be the status quo, to be the way that, that they like it. Most people don't like change. They don't like adaptation. They don't like challenges. They want just their patterns. If you talk to people within the emergency management or crisis management, people who have, I guess, have been infected with this different mindset, you'll get a really emotional response because the general feeling is that once there's an incident, whether it's an emergency, a crisis, disaster, or a catastrophe, that there is no more status quo. There's no, you can't go back to normal because things change. Things are always different. And the hope from within the industry, and this is cliche that's been taken advantage of and, and used in arguments from all sides, is the hope is that within the industry, we can take advantage of the disruption. We can take advantage of the, the emergency, take advantage of incident to be better, to find a way that we can become more resilient, that we can learn from it, that we can harden resources, harden infrastructure so that the disruption is less the next time it happens. The challenge right now is that specific phrase is has been co-opted in terms of people taking advantage of the disruption to accrue power, to accrue benefit. And, you know, this goes back to the coordination collaboration. It goes back to transparency and accountability where most people don't understand what emergency and crisis management is. Most people don't understand what the focus is on or what the targets are on. And then, you know, within the industry, just like everywhere else, you do have people that are more focused on what's in it for me versus what's in it for us. And it's all coming to a head, you know, and to steal the cliche, we're in a perfect storm where because of the increased visibility, because of the 24-7 information overload, because of 
you know, the changing technology, the changing social and, and cultural structures, all of this is coming to a head at once. And there's a lot more visibility into it. You know, you can't have the the secret star chamber discussions anymore. You don't have that type of cultural acceptance. And the general public absolutely wants the status quo. They want to be comfortable. They want to be, they want to go through their own lives without having to think about risk, without having to think about consequence. And the challenge is to educate people without scaring them and to influence people without threatening them and to grow the shared understanding of what is the goal, what's the intended output of emergency crisis management, what's the intended output of insurance, what's the intended output of building codes or restrictions. So we have to get a lot better at communicating, defining it first and then communicating a why behind the decisions, the why behind the plans, the why behind the playbooks, the why behind the restrictive activities. And it's it's a challenge because that all comes back to trust where, okay, we can tell people what we see as the truth. We can tell people what we see as the justification behind actions. And if they look at us and say, well, I don't believe you, you're, you're lying to me. You're, you're trying to manipulate me. You know, you're bringing this into an emotional debate and really, really good friend of mine, by name of Melissa Agnes, does a lot of crisis communications work. And one of her tenets is you can never answer an emotional statement with logic because it won't work. It won't get through. And, you know, we're now in a situation where we're uh, trying to apply logical governance on an emotional minefield. And we've got to figure out a better way to to communicate that. I agree. I, I think it all comes down to trust at the end of the day and public trust and, and between the institutions and the public that they serve. And it's going to be extremely difficult, I think, moving forward in terms of how we're going to do that. And it's going to be nothing less than public engagement. And it's going to be a lot more than that. But I think having to go sit with our communities and talk to people and to explain and to be able to, to stand there confidently and explain some of the decisions that we're making to make our community safer is going to really have to take the forefront of that. I know a lot of people out there that are listening today are probably doing that already, but it's just something that I think we're going to see a lot more of here in the future, especially in terms of what we were just talking about, you know, these changing environments and understanding the impact on communities, how that's changing and the fact that, you know, resources are getting more and more constrained, just a whole changing environment overall. And just on this last point in terms of status quo, I mean, me too, right? I mean, <laughs> I'd love to just have the status quo for the next 50 years, but that and the problem is that's not realistic. And the problem is I think that we need to really, instead of having a reactionary process of trying to maintain the status quo is that we have to really engage and try and lean forward and to, to govern in a new environment in terms of managing with changing risks and threats and everything else like that within our communities. And then the last point I'll say with that is that it will just require a lot from us that I don't think we're, when I talk to a lot of people, I just don't have the feeling that institutions, even internationally, are necessarily prepared for the long-term engagement it takes to build a culture of preparedness. And I think this is one of our biggest issues in terms of governance, that we, we're not necessarily ready to invest heavily in the heavy lift of trying to build, build more prepared individuals and communities. I, I don't have that feeling from many people that I've talked to. It's like, we really need that. But at the same time, they're understaffed, under-resourced, and simply can't do it. 
And just putting out some tweets and some TikTok videos is not going to do it. I think it has to get back to the individual community engagement. At the same time, you also have to have a community that wants to participate, right? So it goes both ways. And I think this is something that we're going to be really struggling with in the near future. So Aaron, I don't know, any final thoughts before we close out the podcast for today? Um, Sure. I mean, uh, we'll close it with a hard question. And, And I think you opened it up with looking at the international application. And that's who gets to define governance, who gets to define preparedness, who gets to define resilience, and who gets to define the status quo? Because the status quo in a Western first world nation is entirely different than the status quo in an African second or third world nation or in Eastern Europe or in Asia. So who sets the expectations? You know, if I walk in and and unfortunately this happens a lot, if I walk in a, in a room and go, okay, I'm the expert from the United States, my word is final. It's the best answer out there. I'm going to get hard and feathered and, and run out of of a country on a rail. But at the same time, you know, other contexts, other frames of reference can't be universally applied. And that's probably one of the major points in my approach toward governance is that my answers work for me and my environment and my culture. But if I'm writing governance for global, an international entity, a multicultural element, my rigid governance isn't going to work for everybody. So who gets to set the standards? Who gets to set the expectations? And then who's responsible for the execution for that long-term investment? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think you know, also just clarifying that point a bit more is that questioning is not challenging, right? And so questioning is just trying to understand. And when we talk about questioning sort of the governance process in your communities, it's not about, you know, questioning authority and challenging authority. It's just questioning about how does the system work? How do we get more resources? How do, you know, what are the justification? Where are the grants? How is that planned? Who's spending the money? How are the decisions made? And exactly to your point, Aaron, it's like everybody and every community is different internationally, nationally, whatever the case is. And they all have to sort of, you know, discover their own way in, in terms of how their communities are governed and to bring that forward. I mean, having an engaged community that holds you accountable, I think is extremely important. And then also in terms of being able to, you know, have them invested and, and invested in the work that you're doing is, I think, something that everybody wants. So that's governance. We delved in that to just a little bit in terms of governance and emerging crisis management. Obviously, it's a very complex topic. It can be very abstract. It challenges the old ideas and we have to be comfortable with the changes and the threats of new ideas. And so I think that's not going away. It's something that we have to continually work on. And it's something that we, I know it personally, we do it over at CBI. We work on these issues quite a lot and there's not one single answer to Aaron's point. So thanks again for joining us, Aaron. If anybody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to find you? Best way to find me is probably direct to my email, you know, Aaron at 139.com. The number one, the word 30, T-H-I-R-T-Y, the number nine.com. My website at that same address, or they can find me on LinkedIn. And uh, I'm always open for uh, for conversations and debates. And, you know, I like to, uh, you know, to question without challenge, but I also like to challenge without confronting. So I'm open for that debate and the discussion and hopefully we can all learn from. Great, Aaron. Really appreciate you being here today. And thanks for joining us. And yeah, great discussion. Hopefully we'll have more of these. Thanks, everybody. 